Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, and in the studio, we have Jacob and Zane. And Zane might want to introduce the special guests we have in the program today. Yes, we've got my mum again, Linda Alcorn, <laughs> who's a lifelong Teachers Federation rank and file member and a high school art teacher from Whitebridge High up in Newcastle. So. Oh, good morning. It's lovely to be here. Hmm. Lovely to see you again. Guten Morgen, <laughs> good to have you here. Um, and um, so for Green Left Weekly Radio um, this week, um, I guess it's going to be kind of a program that's mainly going to be focused quite a bit. Um, one of the central themes, I guess, many listeners probably have heard about the federal budget um, that has just come out, and so we'll have a bit of commentary um, about the budget, you know, what it means uh, along with its many different aspects, including education, um, welfare, um, you know, how the budget is nothing more than just basically a rich man's budget, not really a working class budget, not really for, you know, the working poor. Um, and then we'll also, we'll be having that, we'll actually have an interview with Jed Carney, um, who's the president of the ACTU, um, regarding the budget. And then at 8.10 a.m., we'll be having an interview with the um, Andrew... I don't know how to pronounce... Uh, Andrew Vendramini. Vendramini, um, who is the assistant district secretary of the CFMU, and he's currently involved in a particular struggle um, about about um, regarding some workers who are locked up in... or who have locked themselves in in Mitalford. No, they've been locked out by the company, so oh, it's yeah. like a... Um it's like a strike in reverse. The company is trying to starve them into submission. And so that will be will be interesting to hear um, more about how that, that struggle is going. Um, I guess um, before we move, I'd like to acknowledge um, we are on the lands of the wandering of the Kulin Nation and always was, always will be um, Aboriginal land. Yeah. Right. So... Um, who wants to start off the kind of discussion about any kind of recent headline news that you've heard? Well, there was just a funny little thing. Um, is uh, is that mic up? Is that yep. right, getting a good signal? Um, yeah, the, uh, I heard a, 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 an interesting update yesterday. So there's been news coming out of the US of uh, Donald Trump as sacks ahead of the FBI. Uh, it's a bit controversial because the FBI were investigating Trump's links to uh, the Russians during the election. We have discussed that before. It's probably a little bit overblown. Um, people are, maybe some people put a bit too much emphasis on this link with the Russians and how that was responsible for losing the election and that kind of lets Hillary Clinton off the hook a bit who didn't have a particularly useful um, 
kind of program. Anyway, um, the head of the FBI has been sacked. It is nonetheless controversial because that investigation was happening. And uh, reports I heard is that there was some sort of press conference called and White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer was on the way or something and, I don't know, wasn't prepared for this uh, difficult press conference to try and talk through this controversial decision. And so Sean Spicer and a couple of his assistants were seen literally hiding in some bushes to try and dodge this press conference. Uh, yeah, so. I think um, what um, what is most interesting um, is there is a bit of um, I don't think it's actually much worth much of a debate on the left, but there is actually a bit of a debate in the left about the lawfulness of this action, and including there was actually an interesting tweet um, by Edward Snowden who basically said that you know you, we actually should be you know even though the FBI director was has been attempting to persecute me for years. Um, for my whistleblowing activities, I think we, he basically sort of argued that we should be defending, you know, um, that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, ex, um, acceptive of, you know, this sort of firing of the FBI director, even though all things considered the FBI is a very, uh, it's an instrument of the state, mm. um, and it's quite, um, but of course, Donald Trump's actions could, you know, there's an argument that could be made that it does, you know, spark this sort of fears of like, you know, dictatorship. That he has the right to just fire someone just like that because he was potentially participating in an investigation that would smear his name or undermine him in some mm. way, which I think is the main kind of debate really in the left. Where there's some in, in the left, they're sort of just saying, "Oh, the FBI director got fired," but it's mm. um, I think it's a bit. I would argue, you know, based on Edward Snowden's opinion, it's a bit more complicated than than that and there's a bit more at stake especially in regards to yeah yeah sure and i think it's usually liberals it's usually the sort of mainstream media or, or something that would go oh my god the president fired the head of the fbi that's shocking whereas um i don't know the, the far left would often not be as involved in some of the machinations of the state but in this case the uh donald trump does have form uh the administration has positioned itself to try and circumvent existing state um, bodies mm. and kind of go it alone. And when they're doing something like the immigration ban, there's, uh, you know, it sets a bad precedent for them trying to implement some pretty nasty measures mm. and going outside of or just rolling over the top of existing bodies like the FBI. Yeah. Um, I just might um, play, I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll move, um, we'll go maybe, because I think for these first 45 minutes before our first interview, we'll just have a discussion about different things. We'll probably um, cover a few Green Left Weekly articles, um, but yep, I'll just quickly play an announcement. Green Left. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Okay, we're back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, I guess now we can start, might be a good time um, to start a discussion. I, maybe I can go start a discussion by referring to an article I wrote for Green Left Weekly. 
um, this week. Um, so, yeah, the federal budget um, has been revealed as of this Tuesday. And in terms of um, the higher education cuts are particularly quite trub- um, tr- um, troubling. Um, they can they get together involve basically students will have to pay will be, if um, one of the proposed changes is the lowering of the hex threshold from I think it was from fifty it's currently around the fifty five don't know the exact kind mm. of figure into that in that range to the forty forty two thousand which basically means that you know as soon as university students um, graduate they'll be forced to pay back. Yeah, as soon as you get some pezzy job that pays 20 bucks an hour, you know, a lot of uni graduates may not even get work in the skilled fields that they've trained for, and they might end up getting a job at a cafe or whatever, Mm. which will pay, um, yeah, pretty poor at the moment. You don't have to start paying back your hex until you do get that better paid, more skilled job. Yep but this will change it so that the most mm. basic burger-flipping job, you've got to start paying off you. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think one of the interesting things is that it's kind of like a way for the government, because, you know, the government's making this whole issue of unpaid debt, of, like, you know, there's all this unpaid hex debt. Well, maybe actually the issue is that, you know, there's actually just not enough qu- skilled jobs um, around because the threshold as it is is actually pretty low, um, like, you know, 55,000. You know, everyone... Who graduates out of university, um, especially in a professional field, should be getting a full-time job that pays at least that much. Um, mm. Yet that question isn't around this within the kind of liberal party discourse. That question isn't being raised, and they're just going, they're just going on about um, attempting to not actually address this problem, but you know, trying to extend you know the burden of debt on on, a, on larger sections of the poorest of society. Mm. And I reckon if you wound back the clock to when Labor first brought in Hex, because you had that sort of brief period, how long was it? Probably from about 1975 to the sort of mid to late 80s where higher education was free. And then, I don't know if it was Hawke or Keating, one of them brought in Hex. And they said, oh, no, look, it's just a little fee for going to uni and you won't have to pay it back until you're earning, you know, a decent wage. But I think over time, that's the, the hex, the, the cost of going to uni has got bigger and bigger. And, yeah, the, the threshold at which you have to start paying this big debt back has got lower and lower. So not very cool at all. Do you know if that's going to be retrospective, by the way? Um, I actually heard that those, those changes will actually be retrospective. Um, that's what I've... Being here in, I don't know the exact details. I didn't actually um, men- um, mention it in, in the article because um, f- I, when I was writing this article, I saw got this source from a pretty reliable source that said that this would basically mean that 200,000 low-income graduates will be forced to to repay their course fees much earlier. That's the current statistics they got. Hmm. So I imagine if they already have data on how many actually have to repay the bets, it's going to be retrospective. Um, what's coming in, what won't be retrospective, and this is another thing that's part of the federal budget, is there's actually going to be an uh, increase in course fees. Mm. Um, but this, yeah, this, oh, however, won't be retrospective is basically if these changes get legislated, it'll, it'll apply from July from next year for students who enrol in around that time. Um, and of course, they also, 
another kind of sneaky kind of change that's sort of coming in. Um, basically, the changes also mean that permanent residents and New Zealand citizens will basically now have to pay full fees. Um, at the currently, I don't. Um, they don't have to pay. They still have to pay upfront, but not as much. I think they get they get the Commonwealth subsidy kind of rate, but now. It, um, these changes basically mean that New Zealand citizens will basically have to pay full freeze, um, akin to basically international student. Um, they have basic, mm. um, and of course there's also and even the amount that that is charged to international students is really, it's it's really not fair because it mm. turns Australian universities into this cash cow. Yeah, I don't know what the stats are now, but I remember looking at this in context of the mining boom a couple of years back. And you had coal and iron ore were Australia's biggest two exports. And then number three was education services. And it's all these foreign students coming here and paying massive amounts of money mm. to get a an Australian university degree because it's respected. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that's kosher. And um, the other thing on top of this is there's going to be, um, there's going to be cuts to to higher education, which I think is over $2.8 billion. Um, basically, the education minister has argued that the, we need these cuts um, to bring the federal budget back into surplus. Uh, you know, the, the problem with that is, you know, kind of as I write in the article, it, it runs hollow because, you know, the government um, is already giving mil- billions of dollars in, um, you know, corporate subsidies or you know, not taking any action on, you know, corporations not paying their fair share of tax. Mm. Um, and there's also one of the most, the worst things about these cuts is actually universities. Um, my university, for example, Victoria University, is already facing pressure due to the lack of federal funding to make cuts. Mm. Um, so so these, it's already bad. So there's going to be cuts on top of already existing cuts that mm. university management are making. For example, in Victoria University, mm. um, we did an interview about that. That's my university, and what they're trying to, what the management is trying to do is to cut a lot of the senior staff, and then you know replace because currently the situation is that you have all these senior academics who are teaching, say, first year units, but they want to restructure the university to aim to a fit to have this new first-year college, um, which will mean basically they can only have to um, hire, you know, they can make all the senior stuff redundant and get these lower kind of income, you know, academics to Mm. basically teach teach first years. That's not cool. Because those those experienced teachers, like I'm not having a go at, you know, graduate teachers because they do a good job as well, but some of those experienced teachers... They're, they're highly trained in their experience and they're very good at what they do. Mm. And you shouldn't sort of have to wait till second or third year until you get taught by these very experienced teachers. Mm. I know when I was studying architecture, it was very beneficial to be taught by some of these experienced people who really knew what they were talking about and they had a lot of experience. Yeah. Um, so I guess, but I guess the, the most positive thing is. Um, is there's there's a strong possibility you know we can we can you know defeat these federal because you know these these um, budget cuts haven't gone through yet they still have to go through parliament they still have to be voted on mm. um, and you know if Tony Abbott back in 2014 or 2013 under you know 
the Education Minister Christopher Pine tried to propose like a fee de- deregulation of universities, and you know that has since been put into the bin. And so hopefully, I think you know as I write in this article, we beat back um, Abbott's um, deregulation plan in 2015, and we can do it again. And I guess the first step, and we'll probably announce this again at the activist calendar, is you know to head to the National Day of Action against the fee decrease increases on May the 17th. Right. Um, we'll go move on to another discussion about another part of the budget. Um, I think we'll just talk about the welfare side of things because um, and save the whole workers' issues stuff for the Jed Carney. Jed, yeah. right. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. On Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. Alright, good morning. Um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on the 855 AM. Um, now we've just had a discussion about the, the changes to higher education under, um, under the new budget that was revealed by Scott Morrison. Um, but now the next, there's another kind of more, the next kind of very stringent, you know, most troubling aspect of the budget is it's change, um, what they're trying to propose um, in terms of changes to welfare and some of the, the changes they want to do is they actually want to do drug testing of welfare recipients. Basically, to correct, you know, it's all the idea around is around this kind of divide that, you know, people on welfare are dull bludgers, um, you know, they're just using, you know, they're drug addicts and, of course, regardless, actually, um, regardless of whether they are welfare recipients that are using drugs, they should not be penalised or have their welfare taken away from them. It's just an attack on the most vulnerable parts of society. Um, and um, they also there's also what some other more interesting things is they want to roll out, you know, cash welfare cashless welfare cards to greater proportions of the population, um, and they, one of the most terrifying thing, one of the most sort of more troubling things going back is basically they want to cut disability support from anyone who is found to have been, done substance abuse, despite the fact there's actually kind of a link between having a disability and substance abuse. So it's like, it's just very, uh, it's a basically a, a moralistic and mean-spirited kind of way of like, you know, um, addressing, um, Issues because you know it, it goes and fires flat at the face of all these progressive campaigns that are calling for you know drug legislation mm. and treating drugs as a health issue, not a criminal issue. Mm. Yeah, I think drug use is it's clearly symptomatic of people who are socially marginalised. Uh, there's a great um, John Scott put an excellent uh, post on on Facebook that's got shared around a bit. There are 795,000 people in Newstart. If they all pounded the pavement from dawn till dusk, 
Or if they all got whacked out of their gourds and watched reruns of Gilligan's Island all day, there would still be 795,000 people on Newstart because the dysfunctional system of late capitalism does not, cannot and never will produce enough jobs to reach full employment. Even if those who rule us, unelected for the most part, thought that full employment was desirable, by the way, they don't, unemployment depresses wages and thus boosts profit, but even if they did think full employment was good, it isn't going to happen under capitalism. The savagery and cruelty of the repressive measures being undertaken against the unemployed is bourgeois sci-war intended to link unemployment to drug and alcohol dependency, crime, etc., and to blame the victims for the failure of the system, which just staggers from one crisis to the next, and it is in fact just one long crisis which will roll on until it is put down. And um, one of the other thing aspects... Um, there's all these different aspects to their welfare changes, and um, one of the other things they're proposing is a demerit point system. So basically, if you know how the people on Newstart have to go to all these appointments and so on, um, if you miss a point, you'll basically get a demerit point, and mm. so in these demerit points build up, you'll have your payments cut off. Mm. Um, now, just a bit more, um, just give an elaboration a bit more on some of the, how the drug testing thing is going to work. Basically, it was going to be, it was going to be, the proposal was that they'll drug test 5,000 random, you know, welfare recipients. And those who are found to be using drugs are going to be basically subject to a cashless step card. Um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just an invasive kind of act. Yeah, uh, micromanagement of the lives of the unemployed. Um, but I think, um, there are some now arguments, um, and some of this is being put forward by the Greens, um, that this potential move could be illegal. Well, not the Greens, actually. The Australian Law Lawyers Alliance have come up against um, these proposed changes and said that they potentially could be a breach of human rights. Um, so there's, that's a, um, one of the possibilities that um, why it could not get passed. But I think just one kind of point I just want to make is that um, I think... What, a lot of these things that they're actually proposing aren't actually new things. In fact, they've been subjecting, you know, Indigenous and Aboriginal people to these measures for years. You know, through, you know, the Northern Territory intervention, you know, cashless debt cards in the Northern mm. Territory. It's all been, you know, it's all been implemented, you know, to the most, you know, marginalised sections of society. Um, and I think it, it really raises the importance of why it's so important, you know, to stand up for... Indigenous rights, um, and you know, and why it's so why solidarity is so important because they base, you know, the the capitalist class uses this divide and rule tactic of you know targeting the most vulnerable sections of society, and then the other sections of society, you know, are, are sort of made to selectively ignore it. But then you know, when we selectively ignore it, it basically means it gives the government a license to basically extend it to other hmm. parts of the population. Yeah, it's the thin edge of the wedge. So it's, yeah, it's like the, the union saying, touch one, touch all. It's really important to fight these things when they initially emerge and when they are targeted, at, yeah, as you say. So, yeah, that's, um, I think that's pretty much um, everything that could be mentioned about, about the two aspects of the federal budget. Um, but, yeah, there's, um, it's definitely going to be a, a hard struggle to, you know, to fight against 
all this and sort of there's going to be a lot of battles coming up ahead to, you know, resist these. Um, so I'm going to play another announcement and we're going to move to another phase of discussion. Sell the cooler children and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, to spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Alright, we're back on Green Left um, Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane on 855 AM dial. Um, I guess now that we can, we've been talking a bit about Australian politics, and I guess it's um, might be interesting, uh, might be might um, make for an interesting diversion to talk about what's happening internationally. Um, so, um, in the me- in the mainstream media, one thing that's sort of come out, especially in the UK, is um, court, the Labor Party has this election manifesto. And um, I don't have all the full details with me, um, but it has been leaked <laughs> to the press. And so the mainstream media has been kind of going on about it. Um, basically, there's some very terrifying things in this manifesto, including this very radical idea that, you know, the post, the energy and the public transport should be put into public hands. Ooh, that's terrifying. And that we should be building more council homes, which is... Um, Ooh. We should be built, you know, we should be increasing the minimum wage, all these very scary things that, you know, oh, that'd be terrible. Um, shouldn't be implemented because, you know, it would, you know, it would upset the balance of the economy. And it would upset the delicate balance of rich people vacuuming wealth out of yeah. everyone else and putting it into their own pockets. Yeah, so, um, just to give a because I've been following um, the British um, elections, um, I'll just give a bit of a quick update on where kind of things are at. Um, but it is um, turning to a pretty of a... The, this election period is definitely turning out to be quite exciting because even when you look, like, for the fact of the matter, is the polls aren't actually looking good for Labor. In fact, Labor does have a very low approval rating, and one of the reasons for that is because of the years of, you know... Of Blair, basically, you know, where a lot of working people have basically lost confidence in Labor to deliver any kind of credible alternative, even in spite of Corbyn being elected a leader. And of mm. course, this is why in the UK you've seen these trends um, around people turning to, like, you know, the hard right, like UKIP. Um, but of course, what's quite exciting now with this election um, campaign going underway is. Um, gradually the gap is actually being lowered um, mm. between the t- approval rating for the Tories and the Labor Party, with the Labor in a recent poll having like a six 
to 8% increase. Um, so as the weeks are going ahead, the approval rating seems to be increasing slowly for the lay pay. And it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen towards um, till j- at June. Um, where well, I think a factor there too is that Theresa May, her whole kind of strategy has been, look, re-elect the Tories so that we can lead this Brexit process and then we're going to have this independent um, United Kingdom it's going to be wonderful and the rivers will flow with chocolate and there'll be candy growing mm. on the trees. And she's actually been to talks with the um, with EU heads about Brexit and she goes, right, so we've told everyone back home that we're going to have this Brexit and it's going to be real hardcore and we'll be super independent and it's real nationalist and awesome. But actually, we're just going to have a soft Brexit and it'll be real gentle. (laughs) And the EU people have turned around and went, well, (laughs) you you can't actually leave the EU in some sort of soft way. There's all sorts of issues with the shared immigration zone that are going to come up. Um, There's companies that aren't going to have staff just able to shift office across Europe. It's going to become a real headache for them. So, no, it's not going to be a soft Brexit. It's going to be a very difficult process. And um, there was a, who was it, Jean-Claude Juncker, the um, German finance minister, he leaked something to a German newspaper saying, Theresa May is really naive and thinks this is going to be really easy. It's not. And so I think that's a factor as well. Um, People are realising that Brexit is actually going to be really problematic and Mm. uh, (laughs) a big headache. And uh, I think that's hit hit Theresa May's popularity as well. Mm. Well, I think um, another factor is that, um, and this is what um, Corbyn and Labor have been very strong on, is um, Theresa May is having this sort of lax approach to the campaign and says, basically said she won't participate in any televised debates, mm. um, which, you know, Corbyn has been just going hard at, um, even mm. making the comment like, you know, it, um, it's sort of like it came to saying that um, you, you deserve to get a job without going to a job interview. Yeah. Um, yeah, they should hammer her on that. Yeah, so they've definitely been hammering her quite hard on that. And mm. I guess another, yeah, that's, but, but um, I guess one of the main, main kind of things that's going to shift things is the fact that, you know, Labor does have a really massive membership because of Corbyn, mm. and it's going to be, you know, the, the challenge is going to be seeing how, you know, the Labor Party mobilises that membership through this election campaign process. Yes. And there's already been lots of, you know, as a, from observations, lots of door knocking, lots of letterboxing, or, and, you know, lots of campaign hooks, and Corbyn's just going, visiting almost every single area of the UK, to, you know, to give speeches which have attracted crowds. Um, in fact, he went to a, a rural, I think a rural part of the UK, um, a UK that's actually quite typically conservative, um, but he managed to draw a packed-out town hall meeting, which is pretty um, encouraging. So, mm. yeah, definitely follow more on that. Um, the next, um, um, this is probably a bit old news now, but this happened last Sunday, um, but in France, um, Le Pen lost by a very good majority, um, which was fantastic. Um, but the voting um, patterns actually reveal something interesting because Macron obviously won because there was a race between Macron and Le Pen. Um, but actually, a, a, quite a large number of people actually abstained from voting altogether, and a certain percentage of 
people who voted for Macron actually just didn't vote because they supported him, but voted just to as a just as to make vote sure again. the pen didn't get in. Um, so which kind of which is encouraging, I guess, because basically Macron is is of the establishment. He is the establishment neoliberal banker. He wants you know implement the same austerity policies, the same you know attacks on workers' rights that, you know, have, you know, affected France, um, that has been a source of many anger, a lot of anger amongst the French population. Mm. Uh, and so what, um, so it's quite the, there's a strong demonstration that he really has, doesn't have a strong mandate to govern if, um, if they, you know, there was such a high abstention rate and the fact that there isn't, there wasn't such good support for him to begin with in terms of people who did vote for him. Yeah, we had Lisbeth Latham on a couple of weeks ago talking about that. So the French system, they elect the president first, and then they have the National Assembly elections mm. to, to elect representatives to the parliament. Mm. Uh, I guess the other thing that remains to be seen is uh, how many of the Emmanuel Macron um, party in March, uh, how many of them get elected yeah. to the parliament? Well, because Jean-Luc Mélenchon is actually running, um, in his party is actually running a number of candidates for these legislative elections. So, mm. and there's a good chance because of the, um, although there's actually a bit, um, I was just reading a few articles, um, last night about this and there's a bit of this funny thing, uh, um, where the, the Socialist Party are attempting to attack Mélenchon because yeah, basically for running at all because basically he's taken away votes from, from you know the social the hollowed out <laughs> social democratic uh, party. Yeah, um, but the good thing yeah, is, so the yeah. the socialist party. Just for listeners who were not aware, the socialist party in France is kind of like the Labour Party here. Yeah. it's the kind of left of centre ish sort of social democratic party. Mm. And then Emmanuel Macron, who's just been elected president. He used to be in the Socialist Party, but he's fr- he's from like a right wing split from the Socialist Party. Mm. Who are saying the French Socialist Party is too is too left wing. It's too locked into old ways. It's not prepared enough to privatise stuff to cut the public service. Mm. And so, rather than trying to drag the French Socialist Party to the right. We're just going to leave and set up this new party. Yeah. And we'll say that it's not left-wing or right-wing and that it's just new and fresh and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But actually, it's right-wing. It's and the it's radical... privatising and cutting public It's basically services. the radical um, centre, as um, Tariq Ali wrote about in um, the book, in his book about... I think it's called the radical centre. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's... a. I think yeah, what what's going to be interesting is the results of these later shaved elections because I think how the system is going to work with the the Republican Party, which is the Conservative Party, of obviously going to run the candidates, they probably win seats, and mm-hmm. that party is probably going to be quite aligned closely with Macron. Um, so they're going to probably going to be supporting Macron, you know, when in terms of like okay. parliamentary kind of processes. Right. So and and so Macron and March they won't align obviously with the fascists. Yep. And so the Republicans won't align with Le Pen and the fascists yeah. either. Um, yeah, I don't know what's sort of happening. The Le Pen is probably going to run some seat um, parties, going to run some people too in the legislative elections. So we'll dep- it's going to be a weird mix of, of parties, especially when you look at the results of that French election of how, mm. you know, basically the Socialist Party kind of had such a terrible showing. 
and the Republican, and so the, the three strongest um, pa, um, pa, um, groups that ca- had the strongest showing was Jean-Luc Mélenchon and his new party, mm. and Le Pen and then Macron. So it's going to be a weird mix of, and it's going to be weird um, how people vote in the legislative elections. But yeah. So so do do you, so do you know if in March if Macron's party plus the Republicans are going to have a working majority? Yeah, well, I don't know at this point because um, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon could get a number of seats as well. Yeah, party. yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be a real mix. So it's going to be interesting what's going to yeah. play out. We'll have to definitely, when um, that all plays out, um, I think it's, I don't know when the legislative elections are next year or is it? No, no, it's in, uh, I think it's in a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely go talk um, talk to Elizabeth Latham again about, mm. you know, the results of that and what yeah, it actually means. Yeah, I was keen to ask her about that when she was on a couple of weeks back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, moving on to, I'll just go play announcement and we'll move on to another topic of discussion, um, maybe talking about what's happening in Palestine right now and just talking a bit about this solidarity action um, that will be happening um, on the 15th of January. Yeah. All right, it's 7.37 here in 3CR. Come along to the May 20th conference. 1916 to 17 anti-conscription campaigns, impacts and legacies. The day-long conference will feature speakers including Barry Jones alongside a host of local historians and will explore issues such as World War I activist groups, the Vietnam War and conscription and war-making powers today. Saturday, May the 20th from 9am to 4.30pm at Siteworks, Saxon Street, Brunswick. Tickets are $20 or $30 for keen supporters. Head to brunswickanticonscription.wordpress.com for more information and to book tickets. That's brunswickanticonscription.wordpress.com. The Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Right. Good morning, listeners. Um, well, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we're just having a discussion about some um, issues, some international politics in France and the UK. Um, now, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is a, the back cover article of um, Green Left Weekly about how you know we should be expressing solidarity with um, the Palestinian prisoners. Um, to give you um, just a bit of a summary, um, dozens of Palestinians were injured by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank during mass protests in solidarity with the 116,000 Palestinians and Israeli prisoners. Um, man said, news agency said that day, protesters were hit by live rounds and rubber bullets as they showed their support for the prisoners who were then on their 19th day of a mass hunger strike against their treatment. Um, so basically, uh, in an example of the stakes, ex-Palestinian um, prisoner Mazin Muhammad, a 45-year-old resident of Ramallah, died on May 1st from medical complications. He sustained during his time in Israeli custody, Palestinian community of prisoners, affairs SR Kwaj told Man. And the demand for of these hunger strikers who are currently, you know, in, they're still currently on hunger strike is, you know, there are for basic civil rights. There are 6,500,000 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, including 300 children. About 500 are being held under administrative detention, meaning they are held without trial by court orders that can be renewed indefinitely. And of course, just a bit of a historical context, since 1967, Israel has jailed about 800,000 Palestinians, about 40% of the male 
uh, popula- uh, met 40% of the male population. Despite the scale of the hunger strike and huge populist support enjoyed by the prisoners in their campaign for freedom and dignity, Israel shows no sign of basically uh, acceding to the demands of the, of the prisoners to end their ill treatment. And, of course, um, they've been releasing demands in the mainstream media, and there's been a lot of solidarity, you know, from different parts of um, from different parts of the world. In fact, there is going to be just um, some quick. Um, so I just have to um, pause this discussion for a bit. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing, and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that. Yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. Alrighty, you're back on 3CR. It's uh, Greenleaf Radio. It's Friday morning, 7.42. Uh, we've got Jed Carney coming up soon, but yeah, we we're just talking about Palestine. Yeah, and yeah. how there's um, all these hunger-striking Palestinian prisoners who are, you know, demanding their basic human rights and dignity. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, just for listeners out here, I, there is going to be um, a solidarity kind of action organised by the Australian Pad. Palestinian Advocacy Network, and you know they're encouraging people on May the fifteenth, which is uh, Monday, um, that you know um, that people should drink um, drink a glass of salty water and go on a fast for that whole day, and um, to show your solidarity with the Palestinian prisoners. And obviously, as part of that, you should post like you know a picture. That you are going on hunger strike, um, taking a fast for the day, you know, to show solidarity with the Palestinian prisoners and, you know, post that on social media and share it. That's, uh, the idea of this kind of action. Uh, sorry, what's with the salty water? That the, um, prisoners are being fed salt water. Yes, that's probably the, the idea of that is probably their, their conditions are so bad that they're not getting proper drinking water, but it's just mm. salty water. That's disgusting. Um, it never ceases to, to boggle the mind, just the, the just the depraved way in which the Palestinian population in Palestine and now also these prisoners are getting treated. Um, so yes, uh, that's definitely a good solidarity action to take part in. Oh yeah, hello, I'm Jacob here. And so uh, yeah, so we've got uh, Jed Carney has just uh, called in, I believe, to a uh, president of the ACTU to talk with us this morning about the budget that's just been handed down. So, uh, are you there, Jed? 
Yes, I am. Good morning. Oh, welcome. Uh, this is Zane. Thank you. Yeah, you just spoke Jake. to Jacob. Yeah, so yeah, we interviewed you, um, I think, before um, about the penalty rate um, ah, cuts. Yeah. On a very same program. Um, so I guess um, the first kind of question to kind of get asked and going in line with your media release is what is your kind of, what is the ACTU's kind of position on this new federal budget? Well, we were hoping for a budget that would address all the things that Australians are feeling need to be addressed. You know, we have rising inequality in this country. We have insecure work. We have people caught on contract labour. Um, there's rising cost of living for a lot of people who just live pay packet to pay packet. And unfortunately, there's very little in this budget um, that will really help any of that. Um, we were concerned that there wouldn't be any new money for things like health and education, which of course is also important to um, Australians and mm-hmm, there's been cuts, surprise, surprise to that. Uh, there's also been some very punitive measures, very awful punitive measures put on people who rely on unemployment benefits or disability payments um, just to survive. So um, it's interesting though because the budget has been dressed up by this government and by some parts of the media as a very progressive budget. You know, there's been a huge shift in ideology. They're going to tax the banks. But if you look very carefully at this budget, um, it's really not very progressive at all. And um, can you kind of elaborate a bit more of um, what is in the budget that it particularly in, um, affects industrial law and workplace um, workers' rights issues in general? Well, there's really what we were hoping that there would be something in there that, um, for example, would support a rise in the minimum wage. Um, we knew that they were never going to backflip on their stand on penalty rates. But um, without trying to bore everybody by getting a bit technical, they have um, said that they're going to bring the budget back into balance, but they've done that predicting really very large wage increases, um, <laughs> which um, they expect to get massive amounts of income, you know, pays you earn income from, which is all, uh, it's just completely crazy stuff. I mean, on the one hand, they're making sure that working people, pa- working people's pay goes backwards, and on the other hand, they're predicting, predicting all these massive wage increases. I, I actually felt um, it might be a good idea to write to Scott Morrison and say, come down to ACTU and we can have a chat about how we can make sure these wage rises happen. But yes, it's a very strange budget indeed. And one um, other question kind of have is um, basically what are, what is their kind of proposals around education? What are the kind of the implications of that for, you know, workers, especially teachers? Well, as you know, the teachers, um, the AEU, the teachers union in Australia um, and the IEU lobbied very hard to get what we call needs-based funding where the funding actually follows the child and so that if you're a school that have a lot of children with high needs, then you would get more funding. Uh, If you're a school that doesn't, uh, then you would get less funding. So in a nutshell, I think that's kind of what you describe needs-based funding as. And Gonski, of course, was um, the author of this model that Julia Gillard's government um, said they would implement. Now, the government, this particular government, um, Malcolm Turnbull, is trying to convince Australian people that he is actually uh, going to deliver on Gonski, but we understand that it's about $22 billion less money that is going to go into schools for our kids, which is pretty bad. And so, um, what is it? What is the what is the character of these cuts? Are there any particular schools that are going to be affected? Well, 
Well, yes, it's interesting because the Teachers Federation in New South Wales did a wonderful analysis of the cuts and has been able to actually bring out um, school by school um, who is going to lose and what what will happen. And what we can see is that under the original Gonski um, proposal, about 80% of all federal government funding would go to uh, public schools, to state schools. Um, and 20% would go to private schools where people can actually pay. Under this model, we believe that less than 50% will actually go to state schools, which is, you know, outrageous because that's, we know, where the most need is. They don't get um, income from fees. They have a lot of, of the lower socioeconomic demographic kids that need a lot of assistance. So really, this is, um, again, a handout to those wealthier, uh, wealthier schools that don't really need the money. Mm. But it's been kind of um, packaged as as something because the Turnbull government, when reviewing this budget, basically said something along the lines that we are actually going to be cutting, you know, government subsidies from private schools. Is that all just you know propaganda, kind of ideological? Well, it's it's hard to to marry the two. I do know um, that there are some very very wealthy schools, like the top twenty or so wealthy schools, that will get um, a large cut. I know the Catholic school system is saying that they are going to lose out quite dramatically. And then um, the teachers union are saying, well, you know, less than 50% is going to go to public school. So um, there's a lot of discourse around this. My heart and soul lies, of course, I think, with the teachers. I think that they would know what they were talking about. But uh, there appears to be a lot more analysis to be done. But the basic bottom line to take away from it is that $22 billion will be cut from the education budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of the ne- next things I kind of want to ask is you mentioned the kind of punitive um, welfare kind of changes and what is kind of like um, the what has been kind of the position of the union movement and the ACTU generally on these these changes and how they would affect um, impact on workers and yeah so for a long time now we have supported the need for a rise in New Start I mean I think it's about thirty five dollars a day at the moment nobody can live on that much money. It is ridiculous. You you know, you, you can't afford to buy new clothes. You can't afford to go to the dentist. You really can't afford to do um, any of life's necessities on $35 a day. So we were hoping for an increase in new starts at least. We were also hoping for an increase in um, funding for homelessness, which, as you know, is becoming an increasing problem. Um, we were hoping that um, the very punitive work for the Dole program, including the awful job pass, um, would be scrapped and that some proper training and skills um, money would be put aside to help um, unemployed people, young people, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to actually get some meaningful, dignified work. So none of that um, was really in... Instead, what we saw was um, an awful new compliance framework for job seekers. Um, they'll get penalised 50% of their payments for missing one appointment um, and 100% of their payments for missing, uh, I think it's a second um, if, uh, a second uh, appointment. So the government is using a very punitive me- measures and then saying, hurrah, look at this, we're going to save $600 million over five years. Um, but really, you know, what they're going to do is just vilify people who un- find themselves in an unfortunate situation of having to rely on... Uh, on, on welfare or unemployment benefits. They're going to expand the cashless debit card. I don't know if your listeners are, know about that, but we do not support that. Mm. This is a form of income management, which really takes away your your democratic rights to spend your money on whatever you like. There's going to be drug 
and testing trial, drug testing trials. This has been in the paper recently where they're going to test the sewage of certain suburbs. Um, so, yeah, there's some really awful punitive stuff in there that is not even necessarily going to raise a lot of money. One could almost say that maybe it's just keeping the, the extreme of their party and, and their followers happy, thinking they're doing something, you know, that awful downward envy um, pandering that we see. And it's, uh, I reckon it's related to the wages question that you talked about because all this sort of demonising and micromanaging and, and putting the screws down on the most poorest and vulnerable people in the community, yeah. that puts downward pressure on wages because you'll take any job you can get to, to get out of this pit of having your life controlled. And I've, yeah. I've heard so many reports of these Absolutely. scummy employment agencies double booking people for meetings. So, oh, so really? when you talk about getting your, your payment cut by 50% for not turning up to a meeting, in many cases you've got a meeting with your job employment provider and a work for the Dole thing in another part of the city scheduled for the same time. So they make a mistake. You can't be in two places at once and then you get your payment cut. Hmm. Well, this is exactly right. And, and I don't think this government has any idea just how hard it is to be unemployed. Hmm. You know, it's... You're describing all the requirements are just complicated. I've heard stories of people getting letters in the mail that arrive on the day they've been told they have to go to their appointment. Mm-hmm. That is, there's really the system is broken and the system needs a complete overhaul. And we have been saying for a long time we've worked with our friends at the unemployed um, Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, who have uncovered a lot of these things that really the whole system survives to keep itself going. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's reverse, perverse incentives to keep people churning through the system because they get paid on a per-person basis. And mm. You know, it, it's, it's a mess and it needs a complete overhaul, not to mention, as you say, how horrible and hard it is for people mm. that have to survive. One, um, just one other question I have um, for you, and this is something that the union movement has been particularly um, sort of putting attention to, is... In the budget, there's kind of like this rhetoric about that they're going to, you know, take on the banks and they're going to address the issue of, you know, corporate tax avoidance. Um, is this true or is, it, or is it really just meaningless kind of reform? Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this because um, this is one of those ones where they said, oh, look, you know, we're really going hard on the banks. They know everybody loves to hate the banks. I'm sure they think that this would be incredibly popular. But they have actually put a levy on the amount of mortgages and savings that the banks have, which will make it very easy for the bank to work out, you know, um, how to pass that cost on, which they will pass it on through mortgages and um, interest rates to their customers. But... The biggest part about all of this is that I think this, I have called this a dishonest budget because they're trying to make people believe they're doing things that I don't reckon they're really doing. Um, the $50 billion, which we now know will be $65 billion in tax cuts, are still in these books, right? So they have still factored in a massive a $65 billion tax cut for big businesses. And, of course, who are big business, who are the biggest business in this country, or some of them are the banks. Hmm. So the banks get a $6 billion levy, but down the track, the government's going to try all it can to get these massive tax cuts for big business through, and the banks, of course, will benefit from that. So, you know, I I think it's a real smoke and mirrors exercise, and at the same time as having these massive tax cuts factored into this budget, they want to increase the Medicare levy uh, for working people. Now, we don't have an issue with 
with levies for healthcare. We love Medicare, we love NDIS, and we think they should be fully funded. But I think it's a bit rich when they say we're going to give tax cuts to the wealthiest people in the country and then slug an increase in the levy on working people. Mm. Um, I just, to me, that is not fair. That's all I'm saying, you know. Um, and I think we really need to look at those corporate tax cuts. Maybe if we didn't have the corporate tax cuts in the budget, then we could afford to fund the NDIS. We could afford to fund Medicare. We could afford to fund the, the proper Gonski um, if we didn't have to give all this money away to multinational corporations who, let's face it, don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. we could even reverse some of the uh, previous tax cuts that were put in under Howard and, and even yeah. under Hawke and Keating. Maybe, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've got nothing against tax. I think tax is very important because it delivers, you know, very important services, but the right people have to pay tax. And it seems to us that it's those people that get away scot-free. What what does Sally McManus say? Only 100 over 180 corporations or something didn't pay a single cent in tax. Mm -hmm. You know, it's outrageous. Right, so we've been running um, low on time now. Um, okay. Do you just have any final comments, um, Jed? No, no. Thank you for letting me ram- ramble on. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks very much um, for being on a show um, for a second time. Yeah. No How is it working with Sally McManus, by the way? It's uh, good to see an all-woman um, leadership yeah. of ACTU. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Sally is fantastic. She's uh, a dynamo and... Uh, She's really come in with a splash and it's given, I think, the whole union movement a, a real energised boost. And so it's, it's fabulous to work with Sally. It's great. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, right. Jed. Okay. Yeah, thanks heaps. Bye-bye. Mark, no worries. Uh, Jed Kearney there, the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, talking about the... Um, the President. Uh, president, It's sorry. Sally McManus is the Secretary. Secretary. And, uh, yeah, just talking about the federal budget that's been handed down by ScoMo yesterday and some of the uh, different uh, measures that are in that budget. Okay, so um, I'm just going to play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to um, the activist calendar calendar. from Green Left Weekly Radio. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's now we're getting on to that time of the show um, where we're going to talk about the activist calendar and what's coming up and, you know, because, um, you know, getting, um, being part of the, you know, the struggle for a better world involves more than just listening to radio programs like that, it involves, you know, getting active and going to some of these events that we talk about, that we're going to be talking about in the next 10 minutes. Word. 
And I've got special guest news, uh, Activist Calendar Reader with us, Linda Alcorn, uh, direct from Newcastle. She's a lifelong rank and file, um, Teachers Federation member and art teacher. So good to have you here, Mum. Thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> I feel very honoured to read this. Okay, so today, uh, uh, today, uh, Friday the 12th, we've got um, a protest and it's Moreland says no to Adani. And the protest is outside the Coburg Westpac branch and uh, we're going to ask Will's Labor MP, Peter Carlisle, to join us. If he's unable to come, um, we're going to follow the Westpac action with a visit to Carlisle's office. It's about 400 metres from there. The Labor Party has not come out clearly against this coal mine, but Peter Carlisle has signed the Climate Emergency Declaration, which commits him to supporting strong, immediate action on climate change. So that's at 11, uh, sorry, 12.30 today on uh, Sydney Road at Westpac, and it's initiated by the Climate Action Moreland. And you can get onto Facebook to look at that. So the next thing is tonight at 6pm, and that's a candlelight vigil and speak out. It's remembering 69 years of Al Nakba. In 1948, more than one million Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their homeland by Zionist forces, with more than 500 Palestinian villages depopulated and destroyed. Of that one million, more than 750,000 fled to Arab states and 150,000 were forcibly displaced within what would um, become the new Israeli state. Today, more than 7 million Palestinian refugees, the largest refugee community in the world, are living in exile. So it's at the State Library today um, at 6pm. It's... um, yeah, incredible. I didn't know it was that big. Uh, mm. uh, okay, so the other, next one is Red Cinema. Oh, it's called Do Not Resist, an account of the increasing use of military weapons and tactics by local law enforcement in the United States, counterpointed with civil unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, following the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. Uh, that's directed by Craig Atkinson and runs for a bit over an hour. It's at 6.30pm. There's a meal from 6pm. It's $10 um, and, uh, or $5 if you're unwaged. Um, and that's at the Resistance Centre, uh, 407 Swanston Street in the city, opposite the RMIT. On Monday, there's a public meeting and it's called Safeguarding the End of the Rainbow. All too frequently, um, LGBTI individuals and their families of choice face very hostile outcomes at the end of life. Uh, Cota Victoria and Transgender Victoria bring you a panel discussion on the legal issues to consider in planning for the future of LGBTI communities. That's at um, 9 to 11am on Monday and the entry's free. Uh, it's at Maddox, the boardroom, Collins Square, Tower 2, level um, 25, and that's in um, 727 Collins Street, City. And that's presented by the Council on the Ageing and Transgender Victoria. Uh, on Wednesday, May 17th, there's a rally, Make Education Free Again. No Cuts to Welfare. 2pm, State Library, organised by the National Union of Students. I was very lucky to have a free education. and um, um, As it should be. Yeah, mm. yeah, as it should be. feel very lucky. 
Uh, on uh, Wednesday at 6.30pm, there's Feminism in the Pub, and this one's about sexism at work. The speaker is Sally McManus and uh, the ACTU secretary you just mentioned. Uh, that's at the Bull and Bear Tavern. So you can enjoy a nice drink and um, have a, a good discussion about sexism at work. That's in Flinders Lane in the city. Uh, on Thursday, next Thursday, there's a public meeting and um, that's for disability discrimination in the workplace. And you can learn about disability discrimination and reasonable adjustments that can be made at work. That's at 2.30pm Ross House and that's at uh, 247 Flinders Lane in the city too and that's presented by the Disability Discrimination Legal um, Service. Uh, there's some really amazing activism coming up. Thank Indeed. you. Is there... Oh, no there's one. There's Sorry. One. <laughs> <laughs> and it just rolls on. Ah, wow. Okay. FOE, Forest Collective, Information Night. So it's uh, Friends of the Earth. Ah, for right. Okay. And that's at the Friends of the Earth Cafe in Fitzroy and 6.30pm. And that's next Thursday as well. Next Saturday, May 20th, and uh, to next Sunday, May 21st, is the Canberra National Refugee Rights Conference. There's a full program for that. Uh, Saturday, May 20th, a conference at um, uh, 1916-1917 anti-conscription campaign. 2017 is the 100-year anniversary of the second of two referendums on conscription. In 1917, in the midst of the war, Australian anti-conscription campaigners succeeded in defeating the introduction of conscription uh, by an even greater margin. This was a unique example of popular opposition to conscription in the countries engaged in the war, but has received little attention in official ANZAC um, World War I commemorations. That's 9am to 4pm, and that's at Siteworks in Brunswick, um, Saxon Street, Brunswick. Um, and that's a Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign. You can see that on Facebook. Uh, rally, tell Turnbull. Marriage equality now. No more stalling on LGBTI rights. No more kowtowing to the right-wing members of the Liberal Party, um, the Liberal backbench. It's time for Turnbull to drop the plebiscite and allow a free vote. That's at 1pm at the State Library in Swanson Street in the city. And that's next Saturday too. Uh, the Monday after, May 22nd, there's a forum, unions and the environment. 6.30pm in the training room uh, at Union House at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Friday, next Friday, the May 26th to Saturday, May 27th, uh, theatre. Uh, Corin Dirk, I hope I'm saying that right, Corin Dirk. In 1881, the people of Corin Dirk Aboriginal Reserve went head-to-head -head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. Their goal was both simple and revolutionary to be allowed to continue the brilliant experiment in self-determination they had pioneered for themselves on the scrap of country left to them. This production pays tribute to the resilience and adaptability uh, adap adaptability adaptability yeah, thank you of a people who rose to the challenge despite the odds hmm. appropriating the power of the written word to make their voices loud and clear. 
and that is at the Footscray Community Arts Centre in Moreland Street, Footscray, and you need bookings for that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, these all sound interesting. Mm. And then we have on Thursday, May 25th, the film screening, Neruda. It's 1948 and the Cold War has reached Chile. Following the president's outlawing of communism, Neruda, who is uh, Louis Nichol, and his wife, artist wife Delia, are forced into hiding. Beloved by the populace, they slip underground and are pursued by incompetent, vainglorious police inspector Oscar Pellinuccio, and uh, hoping to make a name for himself by capturing the country's most infamous fugitive. That's at 6pm, Cinema Nova in Ligon Street, Carlton. You can make bookings for that too. And last of all, Saturday, May 27th, Walk with Educators. Big Steps Family Day. Early childhood educators are fed up of oops, sorry, of earning as little as $20 an hour. And we're not going anywhere until we win professional pay. This year we have staged the largest early childhood walk-off in Australian history. We even took our campaign to TV screens and billboards across the country. Now it's time to hit the streets and demand equal pay for educators. We need to show the government that families support us. That's at 1 to 4pm at the Parliament Steps, Spring Street City. You can have a look at all of those on Facebook. And, yeah. Yeah, we could, yeah that's the uh, ASU Australian Services Union that's uh, leading that campaign of uh, yeah, early childhood educators. And, uh, no, it's not ASU, it's United Voice. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought I you were involved in that. Oh, my mistake. Well, mm. good work, United Voice. <laughs> That's my union. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's very important for early childhood educators to get well paid and well respected. So. Crucial time. All right, so on the phone um, we have got um, CFMEU Assistant District Secretary Andrew Vendramini uh, to talk to us about the uh, Myrtleford... Colt, uh, Carter Holt Harvey uh, lockout that's happening. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, good morning. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, so, could you tell us uh, just a bit about the context? What is the? Uh, where is Myrtleford? In case any of our listeners were not familiar, and uh, what is this factory um, producing there? Uh, it's in northeastern Victoria, um, about 20 minutes from Wangaratta, um, and an hour from Albury. So. That should uh, give you an idea where it is. That it's, it's not actually a factory; it's a, it's a sawmill. Oh yeah. Um, and what they got, what they supply here is um, is plyboard, uh, plyboard that's used in the housing industry, uh, commercial commercial uh, work, um, building sites, that sort of stuff. So, mm. and the disputes about uh, an enterprise agreement, uh, the EBA uh, expired 2016. March, um, mm-hmm. and we've been negotiating an agreement since then. Uh, the talks have um, sort of failed. We haven't been able to reach an agreement. Mm. Uh, the guys then uh, put in to take uh, industrial action, uh, and before the, they could implement that, the company locked them out. Yeah, right. been, out, been out for three and a half weeks. So, um, so what were the workers asking for? What was in that EBA? Uh, they're after a 3% increase per year 
over three years. Um, annual leave over Christmas at the moment. The company operate, you know, 52 weeks of the year. Um, and the guys want some annual leave over Christmas period to spend with it, spend time with their families. Mm. Um, and income protection insurance, uh, the insurance that they have at the moment, uh, they have to wait three months before they can make a claim. Um, you know, that's just not suitable. Uh, you know, how can you go three months without wages, especially when you're sick or you're injured? Um, you know, so just ridiculous. And the company aren't, uh, aren't coming to the party on these things. Yeah, and I imagine that's that's a pretty important thing at uh, some somewhere like a sawmill where there's some pretty serious machinery, and there'd be a very real risk of you getting quite a serious injury where you're going to have time off work. Yeah, and it's not just that um, because you know you're covered by work cover if you injure yourself in the workplace. But you know people, you know there's people being diagnosed with cancer all the time these days, and we've got a couple of people here that have um, got cancer and going through treatment. So, you know, the last thing you need to worry about is um, while you're going through your treatment is that you're not having an income coming through. So, you know, it is pretty important, especially in today's uh, today's times where, you know, you get a lot of people that are diagnosed with serious illnesses and injuries. You know, you just want to make sure that you get uh, you get your money while you're off. Hmm. It's at least, you know, it's the last thing that you want to have to worry about when you're going through treatment or or an or in, uh, injury that, you know, you're not getting any money coming in. So it's, it's quite important. Hmm. And so the uh, the company, Carter Holt Harvey, have basically done uh, a reverse strike and they've locked out the workers to try and force use to sign on to the... Um, to force the workers to sign on to, to the deal that they want which is, what, only a 2% pay rise, and they're, they're not budging on any of those other uh, yeah. demands. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, they, they just want the uh, the guys to, to roll over, sign off on a 2% increase per year, um, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the issue goes away. But, um, you know, our members are pretty staunch out here, and they've had a guts full of the company uh, wanting to give them crappy deals especially when the uh, the owner of the business is worth a whopping $13.6 billion. Um, and yeah, you said that uh, yesterday. And I, I looked him up. I've, I'd never heard of Graham Hart, but he's the richest person in New Zealand. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Richest man in New Zealand, I think, on the on Forbes' list of um, billionaires, he's listed at 100 in the world. So, you mm. know, it's not like this company don't have any money. They have plenty of money. Um mm. And they just don't like sharing it. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah, I tried to do a bit of research last night and look up um, sort of the, the profit of the company, and it was hard to find information. I think part of that, Graham Hart, he's not like a... I think I was reading about his business thing, and he, he likes to be have 100% control. He doesn't sort of... He's not like a partial shareholder or anything. He's, he's yeah. 100% owner of... Yeah, uh, that's right. I've, I've um, read some stories about Graham Hart, and one uh, story that I read was that when he gets out in gets out of bed in the morning, the first thing he thinks about is business hmm. uh, and making money. So, you know, this this bloke has uh, plenty of money, but he just doesn't like sharing it. He thinks that uh, you know one day he's going to be able to take it with him wherever he goes. So. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of things for great. Uh, one thing for Graham Hart is that uh, when you pass, you don't take anything with you. Mm. 
Yeah, it's and that's really this lockout. That's a hardcore tactic. Look, I think the um, didn't Alan Joyce do that to the Qantas workers probably about five or six years back? It's not uh, something that you see that often. A company yeah. just trying to lock out all of its workers and starve them into submission. Yeah, that's right. Um, but these, like I said, uh, these guys are, are are pretty staunch, and um, you know they're going to do their best to uh, to see this through until they have a win. Yeah, nice. Now, how can uh, how can people support the uh, workers up there in Myrtleford and um, yeah, show some solidarity? Um, we have a we have a. Um, GoFundMe fund uh, on on the website. People that uh, you know want to help out these guys, you can get onto the CFMU website, FFPD, um, and there's a there's a GoFundMe site there, so people can donate to help um, support the guys while they're out. But it's also um, you know if anyone's driving by um, and they want to donate, they can also donate some food and drinks, um, whatever they can afford. So, you know, it's not like we're asking for huge huge amounts of money, but, um, mm. you know, people can donate whatever they, you know, are able to afford. It would be much appreciated by the guys. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks, each for uh, talking to us. And, uh, yeah, I hope you do stand strong and, and stare the company down because uh, they can't lock you out forever. They make no, their money can't. from selling these board products, so... Yeah. Well, hopefully, um, you know, we get a result soon because you know the guys are, you know, they want to get back to work. It's, mm. You know, they want they want to go back to work on a with a fair deal. You know, not feeling as though that they're uh, being bullied in to go back to work or starved to go back. Mm. Except, um, you know, these iffy conditions. You know, um, you know, all workers around the country should uh, should be looked after and and supported by their employer. Um, you know they're the ones that make the money for for the employer and and grow and help grow the business. So, you know, all employers should look after their employees. Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, you know, Graham Hart wouldn't be worth his uh, thirteen billion dollars if it wasn't for all those hundreds of workers at these different sites running yeah. their factories and and running yeah. their sawmills and stuff. Well, just in Australia alone, he employs um, roughly around seventeen hundred employees. So. Hmm. And that's exactly right. You know, without them, you don't have your business there. So you need to look after your employees. Um, yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks heaps for uh, talking to us. And uh, yeah, stay staunch out there. That's it's good to hear that the workers have got really strong resolve. And uh, yeah, they're not going to be buckling to the pressure. Yeah. No worries. Thanks. Right. Cheers. No so, worries. Yeah. It's. Uh, Andrew uh, Vendramini there, who's the CFMAU Assistant District Secretary, um, uh, just talking about the um, lockout by Carter Holt Harvey of the workforce at the ply, plywood, um, plywood factory or, or, or sawmill there, which I understand is um, Australia's largest plywood mill. I'll just play a quick announcement and have a few Green Left Weekly articles to share, um, especially one that uh, about another worker's struggle. 
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Okay, good morning. Um, this is it's 8.20am um, on the, the time and it's uh, on 8.55am on 3CR. That's the 12th of May, <laughs> Friday the 12th. Okay, so um, just uh, before we wrap up the show, um, I'll just get to share a few news articles um, from Green Left Weekly. Um, basically, there's a, a big sort of work dispute happening um, outside, um, kind of lo- situated within the Patrick's Terminal at Port Bartney. At, um, and basically, um, water, um, waterside workers at Patrick's are standing up to the company's attempts to deunionise the section of the Terminal. And there's been a lot, um, really good community support. And so there was a community assembly, um, last weekend, which, you know, where more than a hundred people marched on the roadway outside Patrick's, you know, and occupied the road for three hours, basically halting the, the port operations for an entire shift. And of course, you know, there were speakers from a number of unions, including Unions New South Wales, National Territory of Education Union, Australian Workers Union, the Public Service Association, United Services Union and Maritime Union of Australia, which expressed their support and solidarity with the MUA members involved in the dispute. Um, and of course, there's been some comparisons made to the previous Patrick's dispute in 1998 when the community company, no, not the community, the company attempted to smash the MUA using masked guards and dogs and were defeated by a huge campaign by unionists and supporters. They also stressed the role of the community assembly at nearby Hutchison ports and stopping the sackings of many workers at that terminal. Um, so that's uh, that's that's an uh, ongoing struggle that's um, happening in Sydney right now of um, you know workers under attack and there's been quite a good broad support and community um, behind them. Um, thing that happened just very recently in New South Wales, um, but yeah, um, basically this is an article written by Pip Penman um, that New South and Greenleaf Weekly that New South Wales MPs wrote down abortion decriminalisation. Um, basically, women have been as Pip writes here that have been again let down by the majority of MPs in the New South Wales Legislative Council who voted down a Greens bill to decriminalise abortion on May 11th. The vote was 25 against and 14 in favour of Dr. Mahreen's Farouk's private member's M- bill. Marine Faruqi. Faruqi. Marine Faruqi. Mm. Um, um, Faruqi said she was disappointed with the outcome and described those MPs who voted against the bill as completely out of step with modern medical practice, community expectation and law in almost all other states. She said, although some politicians are completely out of step with community expectations, the law would eventually be changed. Um, All five Green MPs, eight Labor MPs and the Animal Justice MP voted for the abortion law reform. Every Liberal and National MP voted against it, even though they had a conscience vote. Um, only one, John Adker, put the case arguing that the change in law was not needed. He said that abortions are, are accessible and there's no evidence that they're being performed in a dangerous or unsafe manner. Near South Wales, the result of several legal cases, the new 1900 
New South Wales Crimes Act should not be changed because it will provide ammunition to those who oppose or abortion. He also opposed the bill, he said, because it did not include new regulations governing abortion. Um, and then there's a quote here from Mark Pearson from the Animal Justice Party, who spoke in support of decriminalisation, saying it is a woman's right to decide about her body. He said that he learned as a young gay man that there needed to be a separation between church and state. Passing the bill, he said, would take the procedure out of the moral realm where it did not follow. And, of course, John Graham and Penny Sharp from the Labour Party spoke favourably and, sh- and sh- strongly in favour of decriminalisation. And, but yeah, it's, um, but it did, it does, um, it does appear that, um, I think the article also says here that, you know, that change is unstoppable because there is a strong movement, um, in support of this, uh, of this, of this bill. And so the campaign is going to still continue and we're going to, and it's going to, it's not going to stop until, um, abortion is taken out of the criminal, um, criminal, what is the act again? Yeah, the, the criminal crimes, crimes act. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's scummy liberal politicians saying, "Oh well, <coughs> there's uh, you know there's been plenty of abortions over the past few years, and no one's been prosecuted under this Crimes Act under which it's technically illegal. So therefore, we don't change the law." What is that? Mm. The the opposite is true. If no one's getting prosecuted by this redundant law that that's completely outdated and and bollocks, <coughs> get rid of it. Well, the, the most, the biggest hypocrisy is they, the Liberals and the Liberal Party likes to position themselves as being, you know, for freedom, you know. Yeah, we don't like the nanny freedom. state, do we? Yeah, we don't like the nanny state and, you know, yeah. those lefties with the, you know, their political correctness, you know, telling people off for being racist, sexist and misogynist. Yeah, well, we can't even support a basic, you know, human right of, you know, the hmm. state interfering with um, the right to, um, of a woman to choose, so... Mm. It's just ridiculous um, hypocrisy coming from the Liberal Party yet again. Mm. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, good good work from uh, Marine Faruqi to uh, put that bill forward, though, and, uh, yeah, get that debate happening and yeah. get it on the policy radar. And um, there's still, um, just another reminder, that there's still a struggle for that happening in Queensland at this point as well. So I think in Victoria is the only, um, I'm not sure in terms of Australia, Victoria is one state where, Abortion has effectively been decriminalised, but there's still ways to go in the case of New South Wales and Queensland. Mm. All right, so getting to the uh, end of the show for another week. Yep. And uh, I think the Beyond Zero Emissions team, are they coming in this week or is it yes, a they pre-record? Will, yes, they'll be coming in this week. Um, so, yeah, yeah I'd like nice. to thank um, all our guests um, for being on the program, uh, yeah. including Linda. So he did a good job um, reading out the activist calendar. Yeah. And um, we've also, um, we'll have another program next um, Friday, so um, tune in for that, listeners, and um, yeah, um, keep, the, keep the struggle going and um, stand up and fight for a better world. Yeah, the, uh, that Myrtleford uh, lockout that we were hearing about, if you want to donate to support the workers um, who are locked out of that workplace, uh, as we discussed, the, the company is trying to starve them into submission. Just keep an eye on the uh, Green Left Radio Facebook page because we'll post a link there to the uh, the GoFundMe page if you wanted to make a little donation to yeah keep keep food in the bellies of the workers there. Okay, right. all right. Goodbye, listeners, and tune in for next Friday at seven a.m. Au revoir.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?